So we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 32. And this is Jesus speaking. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that, better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here at City Light. And great to have you with us this afternoon for our final 4 p.m. service here before we move down to the school. And uh, I just wanted to draw your attention to something else following on from last week. Uh, last week we got up here and we spoke from Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount regarding stewarding our finances for the glory of God. And we put a need before the church to say as we headed down to the school, we wanted to cover the rent for that for the rest of the year as well as some new gear to make it feel like home and our hope was to to reach 20k in just under 20 days and by Tuesday we'd already hit that target and as of this morning we're at 33 and a half thousand dollars so far so I think that's worth applauding because we're not a church that points to dollars and cents very often but we prayed that God would cause his grace to abound in us in generosity and he's gone over and above what we were expecting. And it's put us in such a good position to be able to serve the community as well as we can down there, to set aside some, some funds for, for unexpected expenses that will come up that I'm sure will happen as we're down there, as we try to make the space serviceable and workable, even for, for people who have never come to a church before. Um, and it also means we can do our, our, just our launch week and things as well as, po- as we possibly can, as well as equipping our teams to be able to serve. So just thank you so much for your generosity in that. It's amazing to be able to open the Word of God and then apply it to something so significant that very week. And so just be encouraged by that as we move into this next season of life together, that God is at work in our community. And He always has been and always will be because He promises to be with His church until the end of the age. But it's such a clear and tangible sign of his grace toward us in Jesus. So thank you so much for that as well. Um, the other thing to draw your mind to is, yes, yeah, this Wednesday, as, as Jacob said, be there. It's going to be a great time to gather together and pray into this next season and to bring our, our needs and requests before God and also to come along next week. So if you, if you hadn't noticed this little thing on your chair, if you want to just grab these out, just one thing to draw your attention to. So one is it tells us that we're kicking off from May 30. So hold on to these, who knows who God might put on your heart to invite along as we step out in this new part of our church journey. But also, if you've noticed there, for the, for the wise among you, there's a, there's a little detail here that's been added in. Hello, there's a second car park available, right? If you keep going down that street, you'll find that there's an extra car park parallel to the hall where you can go straight across. Now, for those who need stroller access and the like, that's there for you, but also early bird gets the worm. I'm incentivizing you to get to church early um, and to be there ready next week. But so I'd encourage you to get excited for that and to be praying towards that. But right now, we're going to open God's Word um, from Matthew 5, as Jacob read out just before. And we are landing on Jesus' teaching on, if you didn't notice it, 
lust, hell, divorce. Probably not the passage I would have chosen for the final week of, of City Light here. But then as I was reflecting on it, I thought, but why not? From the start, we've always been about whatever is in God's Word, we will teach. And this is Jesus' church, and He's the head of the church, and He sets the agenda for the church. So whatever Jesus speaks on, we will speak on. And so why not travel through the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' confronting teaching here, but also to see that God's Word doesn't just confront, it also comforts. And there is deep confrontation in this passage, but there is also deep comfort. Because what we'll see at the heart of this passage is that Jesus loves us enough and has designed us in a way to flourish when it comes to things like sex and marriage, and His Word on it is good, and it's life-giving. And Jesus speaks in a way that's provocative to get our attention, but we need to listen to our Creator when it comes to these matters. Because the truth is, the vision that our culture has for sex and marriage is, I think, historically pretty underwhelming. I was struck by this recently when I was reading an article in the Sydney Morning Herald called Marriage Wasn't All That Bad, but after turning 40, I realized it wasn't enough. Now, as with anything, any article about anything on the internet, the comment section below was full of vitriol and very uncharitable comments about this, that, and the other. But it, it described, uh, this was uh, an article by Justine Cullen, who'd put out a book recently, describing why it was that she walked away from her marriage in midlife. And she, her comments on it, I think would probably, I don't, I don't cite them to critique the article or anything like that, but just to say that I think it gets to the heart of a modern definition of marriage. She writes this in her reasoning for it. She says, I was plagued by the slowly building realization that I was halfway through my life, that you only get one of them, and when it came down to it, I wasn't living my truest truth. Trading your authenticity in exchange for safety, no matter how well-intentioned, has a way of eating you up from the inside out, but I just didn't know that yet. And in those comments, I think she expresses the sentiment that many people feel who've maybe walked away from marriages when it comes to the modern vision of marriage and sexuality. The modern secular individualist vision for sex and marriage is summed up here. It's secular in that you only have one life, so all the happiness you can find is to be found in the here and now. It's individualist in the sense that your primary allegiance is to yourself and to finding an authentic expression of yourself. And so marriage, if it doesn't suit those ends, is something that you can jettison. And in the sense, it's a contract. It's a contract between two secular individuals who say, if you will help me with my project in finding my truest self, then I will help you in that project too. But if this project doesn't work out for the both of us, if it's not working out for one or both of us, we can walk away from it. It's a contract so long as it's working. It's an arrangement. But Jesus proposes something radically different. He holds that his vision for sex and marriage is far more weighty and far more glorious than this. That actually the right expression of sexual affection is in a death-bound covenant between two people. A whole body, soul, life commitment to another person is the right context, Jesus says, for sexual flourishing. And it's a contract that's meant to, it's a covenant rather, not a contract. One that's meant to be till death do us part. And his vision is going to clash with the very people that he is speaking to. But it's not just that it clashed with an ancient culture, it clashes with our culture as well. And we're going to see hopefully here that his vision is more good 
more glorious and more wonderful than anything humankind could think up. Let's pray as we open God's Word this afternoon. Father, we praise you that you are so good and so loving as to speak the truth to us in love. You sent Jesus to speak of your will for our lives and that Jesus spoke into the murky world of sex and relationships and marriage. And so, Father, we just pray that you'd give us eyes to see this afternoon. That as I speak, I'd speak carefully and precisely so that we might see what you have to say to us through your word. And we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. So the section that we're in is called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is preaching a sermon and he's on a mount. It's not very whatever. It's the Sermon on the Mount. But it's in the Gospel of Matthew, which we're calling the Way of Jesus, which is an account by one of Jesus' disciples about Jesus' whole life. Everything he did, everything he taught, and more specifically towards the end of his life, how he died, why he died, and how he rose again. And this section is a particularly famous section. It has so infiltrated and impacted our culture that many people who have had no encounter with the Bible specifically will find at times Jesus' words on their lips because what he says here has been so profoundly impacting that it's, it's made its way through to almost every corner of our culture. And here, Jesus is in a section where he's moving through some of the Old Testament commands and explaining to his new followers what it will mean to follow him. And he started... As if you were with us a few weeks ago, talking about the command not to murder. And he was saying, look, if you, if you were to be my new people, I want to set the bar a little bit higher than just don't murder. He actually goes on to say, actually, when God commanded his people in the Old Testament not to murder, the desire at the heart of that was a group of people who didn't look at other life as expendable or beneath you. That was what was at the heart of it. And so he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. I tell you, don't even hate someone. And in this one, he continues in the same way, and he picks up on another famous commandment, the command not to commit adultery. Look what he says here in Matthew 5. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is saying, just as he did in the previous week, that the point of this law is not just that his people would not commit adultery, but that their obedience would go deeper than that. He says that everyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery in the heart. He's talking about a behavior where you look at another person, not simply to notice them, but with an intent to arouse sexual desire for them, and they are not your spouse. And we know what Jesus is talking about here. If you've ever done this, if you've ever been the recipient of this look, you'll know what it's about. And Jesus is saying that it's more than just a private matter. He says anyone who has done this, he says it's, it's like committing adultery in the heart. Now you might say, especially if this is your first time in church, you're like, this, this is why people don't love what Jesus says. It's, so, it's just wowserism. It's so full on. This is a sexual ethic that belongs to the, even before the dark ages, right? This is so full on. But is, Jesus, is what Jesus is saying here so absurd? Is the connection so absurd? If you've been the victim of this kind of stare, particularly if you're a woman, you'll know the threat of it, that it's something more than just a private matter. But more than that, 
It, like the desire to murder, at the heart of it is a sin that in its infant state seems harmless, but if it grows to its full head, produces incredible damage. Jesus is saying to go more than just outward behavior, to get to the very heart of it. See, Jesus here is saying that it's a violation of God's design, his intended design for sexuality and marriage. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, when some Pharisees, these are some religious leaders, are hitting Jesus with questions about divorce and they're trying to trap him, he lays out the biblical vision when he says in Matthew 19, 4-6, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is God's vision, that sex is something that's reserved for a covenant commitment to another person. A whole body, life, financial, economic, social commitment to another person. It's meant to be a one flesh union where you're permanently connected relationally, emotionally, everything. This is his high and glorious vision for sex and marriage. But a lustful look is where you take without giving. It's where you take something for yourself without giving of yourself in any way. And this is the connection with adultery. It has the same heart. It's taking without giving. It's transactional. And in many ways, it's part of the modern vision of sex, isn't it? There was a book written a number of years ago by a guy called Mark Regnerus. Regnerus? Regnerus? I don't know. don't really know how to say his name, and he's never going to hear this, so it doesn't really matter. But he wrote a book called Cheap Sex, and he's a sociologist, and he draws on pretty heavily on research done in 2014 called Relationships in America, a survey project that had over 15,000 participants, and he was one of the leads in it. So he has a, an intimate connection with it. And his, vision is that his view is that the widespread uptake of contraception, in his words, has lowered the cost of sex. That is, that two people can casually engage in sex without any significant long-term consequences or responsibilities. And so it's led to a culture where relationships have become shallow and transactional. Not every and each relationship, but on, on broad as a culture, it has thinned out relationships. And he makes this comment on it. The privileging of individual interests, coupled with the ease of access to sex outside of marriage and women's greater economic independence, mean that marriage is less likely to involve a deep intertwining of lives in mutually committed interdependence. Women want men but don't need them, while men want sex but have more options now. Neither sex needs each other in the same way anymore, and each is increasingly concerned to protect individual interests and potential independence from being jeopardized by the union. This is cheap sex. Low costs, high frequency, low commitment. And it's the opposite of Jesus' biblical vision of it, of a holistic, whole life vision of it. Jesus calls it a one flesh union, permanent, covenant bound, steeped in promise, mind, body, and soul, while our modern technological age has nearly perfected cheap sex. But the seeds of it really were there in the ancient world. It's not just a modern problem. And this is why Jesus is so strong in his language toward it. The reason he speaks so strongly against lust is he says, in this are the seeds of a transactional vision of sex. I take and don't give. 
And he says this is the root of adultery. This was Jesus' warning even in ancient times against pornography. It continues to perpetuate the views that other people's bodies exist for my personal pleasure or worse, for money. And of course, the porn industry is plagued by abuse and trafficking because it is predicated on the belief that a person is a commodity for commercial consumption. It's a violation of God's vision for human sexuality and thriving. And this is why his language is so strong in what he says next. And I don't know if it grabbed you as Jacob was reading it, but listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 5, 29 to 30. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That'll get your attention, won't it? It certainly got people's attention in Jesus' day, and it does now. But here's a question for you. Last, a few weeks ago, when we looked at Jesus' words, and he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And in looking at this, we saw that Jesus knows that we cannot achieve God's standard of perfect righteousness. That's why he had to come and to die in our place on our behalf, so that he might win a righteousness for us, so that we could be forgiven, made new, set free. And I also said that actually Jesus here is preaching on this stuff because he knows that grace leads to a deeper obedience than threat. That actually when you understand the grace of God toward us in Jesus, it leads to a deeper desire to honor him, a deeper hunger and thirst for righteousness than to be threatened. So then the question is, well, it sounds very much like Jesus is threatening here, doesn't it? It sounds like threatening language. It's evocative. If you're right, I cause you to sin, tear it out. It talks about almost dismembering body parts. What is it that Jesus is getting at here? We need to understand this because this kind of thing is going to come up again and again in the Gospel of Matthew. And there are a couple of ways that you could understand this. The first would be, okay, maybe, maybe let's say this is what Jesus is saying. Come to me, all you sinners. I've come to reach sinners and all of that. But when you, when you get to me, you have a choice. You can either stay like you are or you can clean up your act and then you get to become one of my people. And at that point, you have to switch teams and you have to straighten up and fly right. From then on, you have to live according to God's perfect standard of righteousness, and then you can be my people. Now, even as I say that, I'm guessing you're anticipating that I think this is not what Jesus is teaching. But the question is, why? How do we know that? Well, the way that we know that is we, we weigh Scripture against Scripture. Even within the Sermon on the Mount, in the very next section, when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, He's going to say to them one of the most famous lines in the Sermon on the Mount, which is, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. It's the expectation that followers of Jesus are not perfect people. They are sinners slowly being put back together in God's grace. That it will be a constant thing that we'll be praying forgiveness and knowing in Jesus that we have it. None of us will be perfect. So then the alternative thought is, well, what Jesus is saying in this passage is he's saying how high God's standards for righteousness are because we know that none of us can achieve it. So the point of the Sermon on the Mount is that you just be really thankful for Jesus. But he doesn't actually expect any kind of behavioral change. He just wants you to know this is how far we've fallen short of the righteousness of God. Praise God that Jesus has won that righteousness for us. 
But also at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says that no one should minimize what he is about to command. He does expect that this will lead to a changed life. So what is he getting at here? What he's saying is that if you have experienced genuine salvation, if you have really encountered the saving grace of God, the kindness and love of God towards you in Jesus, it will leave you a changed person. It will change the priorities of your heart and life in such a dramatic way that you may almost become unrecognizable even to yourself. You think of it like this. When I was at school in year maybe 11 or 12, around sort of just before bell time for first period, the rumor had gone around the school that one of our friends had been hit by a truck. And that's, that's, big news in the, that's big news anyway, let alone in the schoolyard. And that was all rumbling about. But then by about period two or three, it became apparent that uh, the guy who had been hit by a truck was actually in class. I thought, oh, that's, that's odd really, isn't it? Then somewhere around lunchtime, as the details sort of, you know, cleared up and made their way through, was that, yes, there was a truck, it was a, it was a Mack truck, and it had been moving along like the, the, the street just near our school, but that it hadn't hit him directly, but he'd maybe run into the side of it. And then by the end of the school day, the details of what had actually happened had come through. And as you can imagine, they were a little bit underwhelming. What had happened was, yes, it was a Mack truck. It had almost pulled to a complete stop at the lights when old mate, who's doing whatever near the road, wasn't paying attention, turned around and ran onto the road and ran into the side door of the truck. So basically, it was about as dramatic as just running into a wall. <laughs> but of course, when you heard that in the first instance, that someone, so-and-so had been hit by a truck and then they were at school, you knew something wasn't right. You knew that we weren't getting the full account of what had happened. Because if you've been hit by a truck, it, the impact will be obvious. The impact on the body and everything else will be obvious. Jesus is saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've had an encounter with the living God, it will transform you in a way that will leave a mark. And the Sermon on the Mount is talking about the kind of mark it will leave. It will lead you to be a person like we saw in the first week who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who sees that God's vision for our life and flourishing is right, and even though we fulfill it imperfectly, we desire it because we want to be more like our King and Savior. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is laying out what it will be like to have had an encounter with grace, and it will radically turn your life upside down. And that's why Jesus is so direct here. He's saying, if you've been born again, you will start to look like this. You'll be a person who's committed to radical love, radical forgiveness, radical holiness, and all because you've encountered the living God. But there is something else to note in what Jesus says here. I don't know if you picked it up as we move through it. It is the case that Jesus' comments were directed particularly to men. That's not to say that the sin of lust is a, an issue that's particularly for men, but he does call them out uniquely in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, some have theorized, well, maybe it's because he was only around the 12 disciples and they were all guys, so that's why he's doing that. But if that were the case, the whole Sermon on the Mount would have been weighted that way. He was speaking to a large crowd and a mixed audience, but with this particular issue, he speaks specifically towards men. Why is that? I think it's clear from the context that it was a corrective to the culture around him. Jesus lived in a time 
where when it came to adultery, the cultural narrative that was men's issue of lust was blamed on women, around women who were provocative or had led men away from a marriage. And you might have heard modern versions of it. Maybe you grew up in a church where the culture was it was encouraged that women should dress modestly so as to not be a stumbling block for men or things like that. The problem is you won't find that in Scripture. When Jesus talks about the issue of lust, he puts responsibility squarely on men to say you are called to a high vision of self-control. And he addresses them specifically here. You might feel like, is, is Jesus just another one who's piling on men? Like another guy who's, doing, who's just jumping on the bandwagon of, like, of man bashing and all that kind of stuff. But the truth is that's not what Jesus was like. He spoke the truth in love. He's the most perfect man who's ever walked the earth. And here, he does call men to be better men. But he doesn't do it like a disappointed father. He's just like, oh, you've done it again. My gosh, how could you be like this? No, he calls men here to embody his high vision for sexuality by being self-controlled, the dignity of self-control. And it's a message that mattered then because men then were tempted to, to cheat out of being the men that they were called to be. But it's a message that matters now, that we do need better men. In that book on cheap sex, Mark Regneris also makes this comment. And he says that many women today complain that while their careers are advancing at an unprecedented degree, they're increasingly dissatisfied with the quality of their personal relationships. Men don't seem prepared to commit. Men set the terms of the sexual culture, and the men with whom they do have relationships consistently prove unmarriageable. It's a culture of what he describes as lo-fi men. Unreliable, passive, selfish, childish. The Japanese, like always, have a a term that's both poetic and odd to describe this. The term, according to Kate Julian in an, in an article for The Atlantic, is, is called, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Sushoku Danshi. Sorry to anyone who's Japanese or has, has any ability to speak Japanese with a, a decent accent. And the term literally means grass-eating boys. And these herbivore men are known for grazing about, avoiding responsibility, and either an ambivalent about pursuing a, uh, either women or conventional success. But our low vision of sexuality is producing lo-fi men. And Jesus is saying, come, follow me. I'll show you a better way. His grace can transform you into the man that God has called you to be. So they might not be like the men in his culture who blamed all of their problems on the women around them but we're able to, with grace and without shame, take responsibility for their actions and to grow. So Jesus here addresses them directly, and then he goes on to one more issue that he sees in his culture. Look what he says in Matthew 5, 31 to 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now to be clear, Jesus here is addressing a specific issue in the culture. He's not addressing the, the concerns for divorce or the causes, sorry, the biblical grounds for divorce labeled elsewhere in Scripture. He's dealing with one specific issue, and that was that the men in that culture, and particularly even Pharisees or religious leaders, had created 
a, a slew of reasons that were incredibly trivial by which if they were dissatisfied with their marriages, they could end them and pretend that God was for this. And not only that, but it advantaged men particularly. Women were not afforded the same concessions. And not only that, but they were the ones who suffered more significantly from a divorce, economically and socially. And Jesus is calling this out and he's saying, hey, you guys have created this system where you say we can, we can get a certificate of divorce for anything. And he says, I just want to let you know God is not for it. That that marriage covenant is still binding. And that new woman that you're with is not your wife. Because marriage, according to Scripture, is a lifelong covenant. And divorce is a concession for rare circumstances. It's not meant to be a casual contract. And he sees what they are doing with it in his day and he calls it out directly. And he says, this is not right. This is not God's way. He's saying marriage is meant to be a covenant till death do us part commitment. And one of the sad things about that is I think our culture has lost the sense or even the story around redemption when it comes to marriages and relationships. Because the truth is, the covenant creates the context for passions to be renewed when they fade when it comes to marriage. See, it's often the case that people feel like when the feelings have died that the marriage has died. And sadly, at that time, many couples feel like a marriage is over. Look, the truth is, if you, if you enter into a marriage, at some point along the way, you'll get to a point where one or both of you feel like, I did not think it was going to be like this. And not in the positive sense. <laughs> where you get to the point where you're like, my gosh, I did not think it would be this way. And for some, it's right out of the gates. It's the honeymoon that wasn't really the honeymoon period. For others, they spent five years looking down on those couples who you know, kind of came out of the gates and f- struggled for a bit. For others, it's like 10, 15 years down the line. Whatever it is, at some point, when you put two sinners together in a covenant marriage, there's going to be trouble. And God has given us this grace of covenant so that we'd be able to see those seasons through and to see renewed passion and renewed marriages out the other side. Because the truth is that marriage, like many things, is seasonal. It involves summers where things are sunny and optimistic and everything seems to be going well. Autumns where old things seem to be fading away. Winters where it seems like there's almost no life at all. And then springs where new life is beginning. And imagine how foolish it would be for a farmer who owned a farm. I'm not very agricultural. (laughs) Grew up in the city. Whatever. But let's say there's a farmer who has an orchard. Yep. Not orchid. That's the flower. Has an orchard. And in that orchard is apples, apple trees. Yeah. I know a thing or two. (laughs) But let's imagine that the first time winter came, gosh, I really hope apple trees do... They don't produce fruit in winter, do they? Or do they? <laughs> Whatever. Okay. Even as I was saying, I was like, oh, do apples grow on trees or is that a vine? No, it's a tree. Great. <laughs> but let's say the first time winter comes for whatever fruit it is and, uh, and the tree stops bearing fruit. Imagine how foolish it would look for a farmer at that point to be like, oh my gosh, it's over. Pull it all up, guys. We're going to need new ones. This is ruined. The fruit's gone forever. Of course, you'd say, no, that's, have, have you never farmed before? Have you never farmed before? (laughs) Don't you know that after winter comes spring and then there's new fruit and actually as the trees go through this cycle, they become more fruitful and then you can plant more trees and bear more fruit and the the orchard becomes more and more fruitful? How foolish it would be for a farmer the first time that first winter hits to throw it all in. 
But that's so often what happens with marriages. Because there's not the sense of that this is a covenant and we're going to work this out. We're going to get through this winter and we know that God will work through this and there will be spring and there will be summer and then there will be other winters and so on. But God will bring this about because he is gracious. He is the God of new beginnings. It would be foolish for a farmer to throw it in in the first winter. It would be foolish for a fisherman on the shore to see the tide going out and think, oh my gosh, the sea is draining. All the water is going away forever. Of course you would say, no, of course, the tide's going to ebb and flow. We'll come back this afternoon. In the same way, Jesus gives us this covenant that we might see through the seasons of life. See, the secular individualistic vision of marriage is crushing people. Our current vision keeps people who are not married in a panic because they feel like, if, if I don't get married, I'll never be able to fulfill my true self and I'm going to miss out on this one life that I have to live. If you're sexually broken, you might feel like, my, my gosh, like my, I've done my dash. There's nothing more I can do. I had one life and it hasn't gone how I hoped it would and now what's to make of it? If your marriage is struggling, then you think, oh, it must be over. Maybe I've married the wrong person. Maybe I'm the wrong person. There's a panic that sets in with this secular vision of, of, of secular individualistic marriage and sex. But God is the God of abiding, evergreen, covenant love, of faithful, steadfast love. And if you're feeling today that sense of panic, I just want to say that we are here for you. That if anything that I've touched on today has triggered something as well, that, that we would love to be able to pray for you and to speak to you because we know that the gospel brings new hope and new beginnings. That no one is too far gone for God. That the grace of the gospel goes to the very depths of the soul. That God is the God of transformation and renewal and new beginnings and forgiveness and redemption. A story that is entirely missing from the secular imagination. And it's a lie. God is mighty to save. His arm is not too short to redeem. So if you feel stuck in addiction to pornography, if you feel sexually broken or full of shame, if you feel hopeless about your marriage or lack of marriage, just know that God loves you and this community is here for you to work that through. Because the truth is that there is hope in the unfailing love and grace of Jesus. That Jesus who spoke these words was the God who came down to die for people like you and I that we might find new life in him. And so we want to help you, whether it's by putting it on the slips or speaking to us or just message us, we would love to help you because we want to be a church where the new life of Jesus is impacting lives and transforming lives week after week after week. Let's pray that he'll do this work in our soul. Father, we just praise you you loved us enough to send Jesus to die in our place, to save us from sin, and to bring us new life. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit you give us new hearts. And though we still struggle with sin in so many ways, that by your grace you are piecing us back together. That you have set a day and we'll be made entirely new like Jesus and we long for that day. But until then, may we not lose hope. May we not buy into the lie of Satan that we are somehow too far gone or our situation too hopeless to ever find joy in Jesus again, but to know that you are the God of new beginnings, that you are the God who is expert in bringing life from death, 
And that at the very heart of the gospel is the story of resurrection. So Father, may we be a people who hunger and thirst for righteousness because your grace has set us free. We pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.